Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. Eric Jorgensen is the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. During our conversation, Eric and I talk about the creation of the book, the vacuum that's been created for advice and wisdom in a secular age, and the ideas in the book related to wealth, health, and happiness. I have been a massive Naval Ravikant fan for years. I have found his insights into life to be profound, true, memorable, and worth revisiting again and again. In my mind, Naval represents some of the best of America. An immigrant, self-made, brilliant, grateful, free, and open to sharing the ideas that have guided his life. Naval has never written a book about those ideas, and that is the treasure of what Eric has created. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Jorgensen. All right, Eric. Uh, well, first of all, I, I just want to say thank you for doing this and taking the time to to have the conversation. I've wanted to do this for, for months. Uh, it's great to meet you and get, get to have talked to you for a little bit. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks, Dan. It's a, an honor. Thanks, man. Uh, I wanted to start for with a mentality of someone listening to this who has no idea who this person is that we're about to talk about uh, and kind of begin fresh. And I'd love to kind of begin with your window into that by asking if you can remember how you got, how you became aware of Naval Ravikant in the first place and what the process was for you to get really interested in who this man is, what his ideas are, et cetera. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of fortunate to remember this moment very distinctly because yeah. uh, it, was, it was part of this huge inflection point in my kind of young career or like world awareness. So I think I was, I don't know, sophomore, junior in college. Um, and I had just finished this like weekend hackathon thing called startup weekend. And one of the judges introduced us, our team to this, uh, guy, Bo Fishback, who became like a great mentor to me, but we had, we had one meeting that was like scheduled for half an hour and just like went on and on and on. Um, cause we really like jived. And one of the things he told me was like, if you're going to build this company, you got to move to San Francisco. And if you're, this is 2011, so this is way more true than, than it is now. Yep. Um, but the other thing you're going to want to do is go read like everything that Mark Andreessen, Paul Graham and Naval, uh, Ravikant are writing, um, on their, the blog was, uh, called venture hacks and Nivi and Naval kind of co-wrote it. Yep. And he's like, these are the people that you need to read. Um, and so I just like, like, yes, sir. Um, and deep dove on, on those. And so that was like the beginning of my awareness, but following them all on Twitter and picking up talks and stuff like that. So, you know, probably 10 years now I've been like reading whatever he's been talking about as those topics have, have shifted over time. Yep. What did you know about him? If anything at the time, um, and as you began to explore, you know, his Twitter feed, his writings, what, what kind of a perception did you get of who he was? 
I mean, I'd never heard of him until that, that moment. And I was 19. I didn't know anything about anybody. Um, yep, yep. despite what I thought I knew, <laughs> like, I identify but, with uh, that too. yeah, no, it, it was, um, what they were mostly writing about was like the game theory of venture capital. Right. So, so Naval early in his career had had some successful startups that hadn't ended up well for him personally. And in understanding kind of what happened and battling through that, he really gained an appreciation for the nuances of like what's in a term sheet. When do investors, you know, get their liquidity preference, their money back in different orders? Uh, what does it mean when certain founders have control or some founders leave the company? And so he just started writing about these things that were like a little bit behind the curtain. Um, and in that era of Silicon Valley, things were much more investor friendly. Like they had a lot more leverage than entrepreneurs did. Uh, and that has shifted a little bit now, but he started just sharing, you know, when venture capitalists are putting out 10 term sheets a year and you're looking at the first one of your life, like this is what you need to know in order to like understand what you're getting yourself into. And that was the very beginning of it, but he built AngelList kind of off the top of that blog and the following that he got from that blog. And so shifting from like, here's how the venture world works to here's how I'm personally building my startup was that was probably the first of kind of those long shifts of what he was sharing at the time that he was working on. When I think about Naval currently, and this is one of the subjects I wanted to approach with you, you know, in an era in which religion is fading in American culture in terms of its general historic influence, there does seem to be a vacuum for other individuals who have outlooks and principles on life and philosophy that there's clearly a hunger for. And he seems to be, in my mind, especially with a certain cohort of the population, someone yeah. people really go to for advice, for help, for guidance um, in a way that I, I don't know that I'm aware of someone else who has there are people who have a bigger following than Naval, but like in terms of the people who are familiar with who he is and what he stands for, the um, devotion, that's probably the wrong word, but just the um, respect that is due to him in terms of the, the insight and the depth of his mind. I, he, to me, he comes maybe number one of anyone that I'm familiar with currently. What You talked about his business ideas and his business influence. Do you remember the time if there was one in which you realized there is this whole side to his life related to business, but there's really a lot more there that this guy's interested in conveying and talking about. Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't remember the shift specifically. I'm, I'm sure it was gradual um, over time. And if actually I went back through the materials, I could probably pinpoint a year. I'm going to guess it was like around 2016, 17 that he kind of, um, and I think the way he, he puts it is like, I basically achieved the material and social successes that I set out to early in my life. And that I thought would resolve the desires and the conflicts that I had in myself. And I've, upon arriving at the top of that mountain found that they didn't, um, and went through that kind of journey of like, Oh, what I thought was the goal isn't the goal. And I, the quote from, I think a friend of his is like, you know, you're a smart guy. And if you're so smart, like, why aren't you happy? And he kind of applied his, um, <laughs> his type A-ness to like, okay, I'm going to treat this like a happiness project. And I'm going to approach and solve, you know, my own happiness in the same way that I approached, you know, business problems or social and material success. 
and just like read, read, read and synthesize, synthesize and take notes and share and meet people and um, work at it. Like truly like try to build the habits and break them down and understand like what the atomic units are and the steps that need to go into changing that um, and what actually needs to change to drive your own happiness. And it was, a, I mean, I think a really big departure from what he'd been talking about from 2007 to 2016, let's say. Um, but it also attracted a lot of people who really identified with kind of like you're saying, you know, the, the secular struggle of like, no, no idols, no guidebook. And like, I personally, as I observe Silicon Valley culture, I think it's really interesting to watch us like, uh, break down and then recompile all of these like timeless habits and practices that religion has bundled together into like secular things. Like, you know, we used to, we don't pray anymore, but like now we meditate and we don't, uh, you know, we don't have, you know, Ramadan or like feasting holidays, but we do intermittent fasting and, you know, we don't have like church every Sunday, but we have online communities and like on and on and on of these things where we're rediscovering these things and recompiling them in ways that work for us that, you know, religion has been uh, handing us on a silver platter for a long time. We're trying to kind of see which pieces like still serve us different combinations. Yeah. I, I was, when I was a kid, I was a, a firm believing altar serving Catholic. And there was a brief period in my life where my parents tell the story about how I was interested in becoming a priest mm. and that, that there, there was something to the contemplation and the depth and the silence that really spoke to me. Um, and I, I have always, I think you're right. Like as you break apart religion, people need a way to frame the world that brings that makes sense to them that kind of brings brings the world and brings principles into a perspective that they can use to kind of guide their life i remember naval saying once that roughly speaking that all people want three things everyone wants to be happy everyone wants to be wealthy and everyone wants to be fit and i basically to be healthy i in speaking to you and you know there's so much that he covers in your book there's a there's so many principles in there and the ones i would really love to focus on are the ones that really stick with you you know the the ones that in your life in your research of him you you would rank order as the, these ideas these principles seem to really carry most of the weight or the majority of the weight um as i begin to articulate that i'm curious if there's anything in that that as a starting point um you think about often whether it's it's the wealth the happiness or the fitness, the health in general that, uh, you think is worth kind of conveying and, and reiterating to people. Yeah. And there, there's a, there's a lot of them, um, which is like <laughs> partly why I wanted to do this. And also probably a product of the project is I've just spent a lot of time with these ideas. So, um, kind of as they come to mind, like the first is probably that, uh, there's a voice in your head that is malleable and trainable and changeable. Um, I think a lot of people end of all points this out, like take this, take their feelings or their first reaction or their emotional reaction as like a fixed thing. And then like, go try to change the world in order to reflect that instead of realizing that they can change that voice and train it and, um, 
and in doing so like change the environment inside their own head and improve like because that's so much of what determines your happiness is just those those instincts and those voices and um what those kind of values are telling you i think to your point about health like there, there's not um kind of you know section by section there's not a lot about health in this book because naval says like you know i have not dedicated my health my life to studying health in the way that i have happiness or wealth and i started from the bottom and came up strong in both wealth and happiness and feels qualified to talk about those he's like there's a lot of resources about health you should take in and here's maybe some directions to head but that's not his focus um but the the foundation of all of it i think it, which naval does make in this this point in the book is um that health is the most core important thing like it comes before and it may be the most staggering he's like my health comes before my family's health not because i don't care about them even more than i care about myself but because i can't care for them if i do not first care for myself and so with that set of priorities he's like i wake up every day and i work out first thing it is my first priority and so i do it first and then i take care of my family and then i take care of my business and then i take care of you know all of the other things in my life um but if i sacrifice my health to achieve these other things they become worthless um which is a very is an iron principle and it's a very help, helpful and interesting one um another thing is that this is uh this is probably the the specific line that got me to feel like i had to do this project and it's a re- it's a small idea but it i remember distinctly hearing it on um the knowledge project podcast with Shane Parrish and he's like it was it was his solution for envy um he's like I love, I love this one yeah it's it's so good he's like nobody talks about envy or jealousy we we all have it but we're all like ashamed that we have it and we're driven by it in so many ways and i think that like buffett quote of like it's not greed that drives the world but envy <laughs> is super pertinent and realizing that there is a simple cure for envy and that if you are not willing to swap wholesale 100% for 100% your life with somebody else's like you can't envy their six pack or their money or their you know spouse without feeling like you are willing to give up everything that they gave up in order to accomplish that you know their their insecurities their sacrifices their you know emotional trauma their whatever um and if you're not willing to make that full swap then there's no sense being jealous of like picking and choosing individual traits to be jealous of because you're just going to be miserable for ever seeing the best of everybody else and focusing on the gaps that that you are you have to look at the whole person um so and that was like i don't know it felt like a bucket of water in the desert uh, like at that particular moment oh god that's so helpful i want everybody who ever needs to know this like hear this paragraph to hear it um and it's like buried you know an hour into a podcast that only a few hundred thousand people subscribe to him shit that is so timeless and so important and i just want to do whatever work is necessary to preserve that and distribute it and like let as many people as possible access that same relief or that same benefit that i got yeah and and that's it i'm i'm really glad you brought that up because that that is something that i want to i want to dig into with you is which is the process and the reason you took so much energy and time i told you before the interview started that i wrote a book about 10 years ago and it's probably the hardest thing i've ever done in my life at least in like intellectually and workwise so i know i know the grind and i know how, the how obstacles. long did it take you it took me three and a half years yeah 
Um, and I thought it would probably take me about a year. And there's just so many unforeseen <laughs> obstacles, right? You're Same. laughing as I tell you that because yep. you, you just, you don't know what you don't know. And man, um, I'm glad I was so naive before I started because I'm not mm -hmm. sure I would have, I would have done it without it, um, without that fact. So it, the, the, I said this to you too before we started talking that like there is no way you would have put your, yourself through that kind of suffering unless you thought it was worth it. There was something there that must have kept you going when it was very, you very easily could have moved on with your life and given it up and not done it. And I, I would love to spend a little bit of time digging into that as to what it is. And you alluded to this, I think, in your last comment, um, why, why it mattered to you so much to do this yeah i mean there's there's a, a very noble answer here which is that you know what i elucidated before was like oh it was so important to me to get this out into the world and to share it with everybody um there's also like the very selfish reason of like i loved spending time with this material and i feel like every hour that i spent reading this and recompiling it and re-editing and doing more research and finding new ways for these ideas to fit together every hour just made made me better. And so I was happy to keep doing that work um, because I loved the process of learning and I learned it to such a higher bar than I would have if I was just trying to like, okay, let me just listen to it and like absorb what I can absorb and then move on and go listen to something else. I spent, to your exact point, I laughed because I was like, oh, six month project and three years <laughs> later, like here we are. So, um, so there's definitely like, it was a lot of time. Um, but the the third answer which is the probably the practical answer is that like i felt like i had no choice because i was accidentally publicly committed to not just thousands of people on twitter but naval himself to ship something because i had a half-assed idea and i tweeted it out and then naval supported it and said he was happy to help and so like i had the world's biggest fish hook in my mouth to get this thing over the finish line and I knew I was going to publish something. And my biggest fear was that it just wasn't going to be good enough. Yeah. So it wasn't a question of like, there, there wasn't a timeline. I gave myself as much time as I needed. And there wasn't a, a doubt in my mind that I would like hell or high water publish something. Um, so I really just trapped myself in, in every dimension except quality. And then just channeled that into trying to make it better and better and better and better. And my criteria for what that meant changed over time as I got more familiar with it. But I think it was helpful to have that, those parameters, um, and just, just, you know, keep, keep chugging. Yep. Yep. I mean, it sounds like it started with a, an idea and an impulse that this was something you were, it just, you were in a unique situation to, to do and to create. How, how did you even begin that process, right? Did you have a connection to Naval in the first place? How did you broach the subject with him and actually get access to him where he was interested in, in helping with this? I mean, dude, this was such a like happy accident um, because I, I had no connection. I had no prior relationship. You know, I had been studying him for, or reading, following for a long time, but you know, we'd never spoken or talked or messaged or anything. And I, tweeted this kernel of an idea. It was literally a, like a dumb pun on a Twitter poll. Like it was a, it was a joke. Um, and it would have been very dismissible. Uh, but for the fact that Naval retweeted it and I woke up to find like 5,000 people had said like, yes, I want to do this. And Naval replied and said like, Hey, I'm happy to give you the material that you need. And, um, 
you know, wish you well, like go for it. And it's like, Oh shit. Um, this just got like very real very quickly. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and, and with your permission, like I will, like I will now expand the scope of this project massively. And, you know, my, my first idea was like, Oh, I'll spend a few months on it and like put together something with duct tape and move on to the next project. And with Naval's support, I was like, Oh shit. Like, you know, now I want to make poor Charlie's almanac for you. Like I want something amazing and timeless that is going to be like something that you are proud of having be a part of the thing that you're the people who are attracted to you read and, um, you know, gift and get attached to and use for decades, uh, which totally changed my relationship to the project. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm forever grateful for that happy accident. Um, cause I, I, I truly don't know if I would have finished it or if I would have been able to, or if I would have done it to the quality level that I did without that pressure and that buy-in. Um, even though it was, you know, five seconds of, of effort from him, it like meant a lot to me. Um, yeah. and I'm, with no context, I'm like, I don't, don't think he did any diligence or anything. I think he was just like, sure, kid, go for it. And I've seen him do it for 20 other people, um, who have also like many of whom have also shipped amazing projects, whether they're, you know, compilations or illustrated versions of his work or posters or whatever. Hmm. So once you get the go ahead from him, what's the next step? Did you begin to compile more and more of his information? H how did you even start? How did you begin the project in the first place? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, so step one was like start building a resource list. Um, so we got up to probably a hundred different podcasts and interviews and blog posts and you know, articles about him and different things that he'd written or appeared on. And then, um, the other was a like an export of his Twitter history. So um, this is all like public information. Um, the only thing that's not super, super public is like the, the deep history of tweets. Um, I think like only the couple thousand most recent are accessible, but I started with those tweets and I went through and just kind of did filtered them. I read everything, 20,000 tweets, like <laughs> filtered them for, you know, quality timeless, and then did another pass of categorization. And those categories became my first outline. Um, I probably went through four or five different like outlines and structures as things got iterated over time, but those are the buckets. And then I started pulling in stories and ideas and examples and stuff from, from the other resources that I compiled. I think that the napkin math was probably was well over a million words of, of source material. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the first, it was a long time of just, you know, reading and sorting, reading and sorting. Um, and it sort of felt like doing a giant, like conceptual jigsaw puzzle where you had to look like empty the box on the table and yeah. start sorting stuff. And, you know, you have to kind of pick up a piece and like try to grok it and figure out like where the seams are and then figure out what other pieces it goes with. And, you know, when you, when you get them all right, the reader should feel like you're very seamlessly progressing from idea to idea and each, you know, passage sort of begets a question and the next passage should answer the question that the reader comes up with as they're going through. But those passages might be from, you know, ones from a podcast in 2017 and ones from a blog post in 2020. But when you put them together, like the question answers itself and keeps you moving through these ideas. And it just takes a long time to figure out where all those seams are and where they fit together well. Um, but, you know, when you, when you sit down and read it and, you know, people are like, I literally read this in one sitting in four hours in a flight. And I like, did not stop turning pages. I'm like, that is, that is a seamless reading experience, even though 
there's a thousand seams in there, like you didn't notice them. And that's perfect. That makes me very, very happy. Had you been a writer prior to this? I'm curious what your background is related to this kind of compilation and, and just writing in general. What, what's the background? Uh, I mean, I, I have written <laughs> like a lot, <laughs> but I, I don't like, I have no formal training. Um, I was not an English major. I did like very few to no classes that required me to ever like write. Um, and, but though I did like a lot of, uh, I've always been a reader and, I, I have done other projects that are, um, you know, I've written plan blog posts. I've done some compilations that are similar, that are like curations and synthesis kind of work um, of business topics. So I used to run a blog called Evergreen that was like, you know, every week we'd pick a topic and say like network effects. I'd send out to this email list a few thousand people and say like, send me the best thing you've ever read, watched, or listened to on network effects. And then I would try to like smash all that stuff into my head and spit out this like 10 minute summary of the main ideas hmm. and link back to the, all the original material. So if you want to spend 10 minutes reading and get an overview, cause it's the first time you've ever heard of a network effect, then you can read the post. If you want to spend three hours and get a masterclass of like, here's the five best resources of all of the hundred that people sent me like here, read these five and you can spend a few hours and get up to speed. Um, so that was kind of like, I don't know, high iteration, like reps of this that I had no idea was going to like build this skill set. But I think it did in some ways. Um, but I, I think just having been, I don't know, just be like the, the temperament to happily like swim around in this content and the agency to like feel confident moving it around and like trying to put things together. Like I, I, I think is all it took. Um, but and what I'm interested in is like, this is, this is my version but like somebody else could have set out with the exact same parameters and come up with a very different book just based on what they were interested in and how they interpreted ideas and how they put them together. Hmm. And so, you know, if somebody else tried to do, you know, if you tried to do like Dan's almanac of the ball, like you might end up picking very different passages and arranging them in a very different way. And it might change readers or reach readers in a very different way, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. And when you, when you floated this idea out initially, which it sounded like was half a joke, uh, did you include your qualifications in there from this perspective <laughs> no. or like, did, were you just literally some guy on the internet floating this, this idea out on Twitter? I mean, I, I was literally some guy on the internet floating this out on Twitter. Um, so at that point I probably had, I don't know, 10,000 10, Twitter followers maybe. Yeah. So like there, there was some inherent like proof of work in that, like it wasn't a brand new, like egg of a Twitter account with no followers. Um, and I, I have no idea if, you know, Noel spent an hour looking at my past work and saying like, Oh, this guy's like a, not a goober. Um, <laughs> like we'll do it. Or if he DM somebody who he saw, we, we had mutually in common. I have, I have no idea. I've never asked. Um, but I've also seen him, like I said, you know, support other people who propose projects that kind of remix his work. So it may just be his habit to like say, sure, kid, go for it. Um, as many times as he gets asked. And as long as people are sort of in the spirit of his sharing in the spirit of his content, then um, I think it, you know, it only benefits him and benefits everybody really. Yeah. When you're going through these like various drafts and you're building over the months and years here, how involved is he in that process? Is it really just you trying to like iterating, making better, improving 
going back to the drawing board, editing more, and then periodically once a year you're sending him a document to see if, if roughly it's it's in line with what he's hoping for? Or did you have full creative control? What what was the story there? Um yeah, more like more the latter. Well, I can't remember how many scenarios there were there. Basically, like I would work, 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 and then I'd be like, this is like a, maybe a milestone. Like I'll just send him this version and like show him that I'm still making progress. And yep. like literally probably every six months to a year was like, Hey, making progress. Here's the status. Um, and he'd be like, you know, here's the looks good or like, wow, that's a lot or like whatever. Um, you know, he, he never, to my knowledge, did like a deep, deep dive. He did not request, um, he requires a final edit and he's like, you know, if there's something I don't want, like I'm going to ask you to remove it, but he never, um, never did that. And I don't know. I, I had, I have no intentions, but to like produce something super useful for the reader and like just pull all of the most useful stuff that Naval has ever said. And so I'm, you know, there's no attempt to like scoop anything or smear anybody or do anything other than like benefit readers with the best of Naval. Like mm -hmm. that was the goal of this project really. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't expect any, any conflicts and we never had any, um, and I don't, I truly don't think he, he ever read word for word, like what was in the book. I think he like flipped through it. It was like, yeah, eh, I said all, most of that stuff. Um, but we're also, we're also very careful to like, it, there's a lot of passes with like a sanding block over this stuff. Um, and like by definition, everything is taken out of context. So what, what neither of us wanted was for him to get a world of shit for, something that was in this book that got taken out of the original context and then reworded and then edited and then proofread and then moved into a different chapter. And then like, there's all kinds of ways that like things can go wrong as over time, like interpretations and meanings change and all this stuff. So um, it, it, it should be clear that it is like not a primary source, even though what I did was um, with every intention was to like show Naval's ideas in his own words. Um, and you know, past the author's note, like there's not an original word in this book. It is all as close as I could get straight from the vault, edited for readability and um, sort of, I don't know, smoothness of reader experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, and this is a, an element of, of his story that I would love to get your thoughts on. I mean, outside of being just naturally a, a bright mind, what is it about his life? And I would love for you to speak about his life as whatever narrative makes sense to you about where he comes from and how he became who he is uh, that has led him to have whatever you would call it, a, a lot of practical philosophy. Like this, there's a Buddhist influence there. Who is this guy? Where does this, um, you know, kind of vast fountain of knowledge come from in his own personal story? Yeah. I mean, well, he's, he's super broadly read. Um, and I think he and his partner Nivy, um, are both very good writers and, and specifically good writers in that they work very hard to make things increasingly succinct and, um, dense in a good way, like to waste no words to write a, you know, 200 word post when everybody else would write a thousand word post yeah. that is no less, clear um or thorough but is just tight uh and you can see that in his in his tweets he's you know he'll read a whole 
you know, book or speech or, you know, piece of philosophy and then come back with a five words on it. And, and it is like, we all feel the truth in it and are kind of like, holy shit. Um, and then, you know, somebody is like, well, that's a fortune cookie. And it's like, well, yeah, it is a compressed truth. Um, but if you want to go read that whole paper and like try to come up with your own conclusion, like you're welcome to do that. Um, but so, so in his life experience, uh, in so many ways, it is, it is a very broad and, uh, somewhat hard life experience. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting and kind of perfect representation of like the immigrants American dream. Yeah. So he moved here at, a, I don't know, around age 10, um, with his brother, single parent household, like grew up with his mom working multiple jobs. He worked in a, like, I think he's an illegal catering company was like his first job, like in the back of a van and, um, you know, working in restaurants and stuff like that. And so like, by no means a silver spoon. Um, he definitely has, as you said, like great intellectual gifts. I think he, he had a kind of a breakout moment where he tested into, to, did a, did well on a test in high school to get into Stuyvesant, which is like a high-end school in New York. You probably know about. Yeah. Um, and from there, uh, got into Dartmouth, like no mean feat, but like step-by-step. Step. Um, and then from Dartmouth kind of got into the world of tech. He learned software engineering and started to work for a few startups and had like a little bit of an auspicious, like first 10 years um, in the world of tech. He basically like started a company that ended up becoming successful, but he and his, many of his co-founders got screwed by, after they had left the company, um, got screwed by this co-founder who had remained and the venture capitalist. And so ended up um, with a little bit of a legal battle over that, that there's, you know, public record and evidence of, if you want to kind of dig into it. Um, and so by, you know, 30, I think there's, there's like headlines about him being like smeared in the Valley because nobody sues their venture capitalists. You're never work in this town again. Um, and that was like the backdrop where he started kind of writing and blogging and just giving value to others. And then started emailing out deals through Angelus who started becoming an investor and, you know, some of those early deals were Twitter and Uber actually like went out in AngelList when it was still just an email list, um, invested in MySQL, he invested in Postmates, he um, was, I believe, an early investor in, in a cryptocurrency fund called Metastable. And so there's a lot of, um, not only did he start AngelList, which has become a very successful kind of like, I don't know, almost like startup conglomerate, yeah. but also... An amazing investor, angel investor in his own right, and, and um, the portfolio that he's built is amazing. So, and and then you know realizing like, oh, this this was like the chip on my shoulder that I've, but I still have unresolved questions about living life that I'm going to go chase down now, and you know to get off that like hedonic treadmill of accomplishment that he arguably had won that game, um, or at least you know to his satisfaction to the top. 10th or hundredth or thousandth of a percent of the population and to basically get off that treadmill and go find something else to focus his energy on. Yeah. We talked a little bit earlier about the, the three, the three areas that I recall him stating of, of human life that all people seem to want to prosper in. And, mm -hmm. and you're right. I, I think he has, I've heard him concede this point as well, that the health aspect of that 
he probably has more information in his head than most people, but is not, he doesn't consider himself to be an expert in that, in that particular area. But I do think he has some very meaningful, clearly uh, expertise related to wealth. And that's something I would love to focus on with you. Um, I think personally, the reason why I love books like this is because they, the, the ideas and principles that you can obtain from a few days of reading can really stick with you and change your entire perspective and really help save you a lot of time and energy over your life to really direct you in the proper manner so that you're not having to reinvent the wheel and that you're kind of learning arguably timeless principles related to wealth creation, for example, that it might take someone 50 or 60 years to learn um, if they were just going out and living that, that, that life and having to learn those lessons themselves. Uh, it, again, the only way I think to really obtain all of this is probably to buy your book and to read it and reread it or listen to his podcast and re-listen. But in terms of like the the primary uh, the primary principles that, and again, maybe for you have stuck with you or you think carry most of the weight for his general outlook on on wealth. What are those? What are the things that people really should focus on? If you had a close friend, they're like, what do I need to learn from Naval? I don't have time to listen to hours and hours of his podcast. What, what, what do I need to really um, sink in in my, in my own thinking? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a tough question uh, to, give, to give a blanket answer on just because everyone is starting from a little bit of a different place, mm-hmm. right? So the things that jumped out to me when I first started compiling this and reading his like, you know, is how to get rich tweet storm. Um, so it, it's funny that tweet storm came out when I was like halfway through working on the book. I was like, Oh, like, <laughs> this summarizes a lot of things that I was working very hard to summarize already uh, from a lot of different sources. Cause he mentioned a lot of them individually kind of dispersed across all these things. Um, but that became like that blew up. That's gotta be one of the yeah. most um, saved threads or, you know, red highest impression threads on Twitter. Um, and that's a very like tweet by tweet principles level thing. But if you're not able to like unfold one of those words, like leverage into the two page definition of leverage, uh, it's going to be hard for you to kind of grok that and like start to apply it. And so what I try to do in the book is like take each of the important concepts and sh- ex- show the explanation of it and show stories and then order them in such a way that they kind of build on each other. Um, because for example, like finding a position of leverage and like going to apply leverage to what you're working on is, is not the right place to start. But if you feel like you have locked down, like your specific knowledge, you've got very unique skills that are valuable that you're applying to the market, um, and, and seeing success with, and then you are in a place where you have taken on accountability, then you want to be adding leverage. But if you, if you don't have zero and you don't have, you know, one or two laid down, like do not skip straight to leverage. You're going to have a bad time. Um, so ordering the order of the concepts is important, but understanding each of them and seeing as far as you can kind of down that ladder to your point, right? Like you do not want to spend 50 years of your life bumping into walls and slowly like mapping out this maze for yourself. If you can spend a few hours, you know, reading, this book and many others and like get a sense of this maze for yourself, see as far through the mist as you can and be like, ah, there's, there are rungs in this ladder past the ones that I can see today. And like, let me continue to take these steps in this order and 
reach for these things. It might, it might even totally change your goals or your perspective on how you want your life to turn out. And I don't pretend like this is the only book in the world that does this or can do this, but I think word for word, it's got to be one of the most concise sort of representations of how you can go from no understanding of how to earn money beyond, you know, a normal job income to, oh, this is almost all of how it works at a high level. And like, let me keep trying to explore these concepts and play this game. Um, so we, we can try to go into some more of those, but like sure. maybe that's a helpful overview. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would love to do that. Okay. Um, so, so the first one probably like, um, both chronologically and like fundamentally, uh, is, is the idea of specific knowledge, which is, I found to be quite a liberating, uh, concept because this is idea that, like we are all at, a, at our best, we are all moving towards being the best in the world at something, whether it's, it's a combination of like our genetic gifts our experiences, our interests, our talents. And when we are doing our highest value work, it is when we are doing the thing that only we can do, right? You've worked in podcasting for a long time. You have a very unique set of interests. You are well prepared to have a very specific set of conversations. And when you find yourself having those conversations and sharing them with the people who are interested in those conversations, like you are blossoming at your fullest and like contributing the most to humanity that you possibly can. And when you were doing that, you are incredibly valuable. If you were working at McDonald's as a fry cook, you are no more valuable to humanity than the next person who's going to work as a fry cook at McDonald's and the person before you. So finding, you know, your unique skills, interests and talents and becoming as, as unique and as valuable as you can, um, is, kind of the fundamental thing. And it takes, as Naval says, it takes many years to like find that fit. Um, not only are you creating yourself as the key in this metaphor, but you are also sort of looking around the world for different locks and trying to inventory the locks that are available to you and all the different things that people need. And um, not just exploring what you can do for them, but also like changing yourself and figuring out what you can do for them and combining different uh, skills and stacking those skills makes you like increasingly unique and increasingly valuable. Um, There's a great metaphor in the book of um, is it a little bit of a oversimplification, but if you are the, if you can dive scuba dive deeper than anyone else in the world due to some combination of like your training or your bravery or the equipment that you've invented or bought or know how to use um, and a new treasure is discovered at a depth that only you can dive to, you will be entitled to a share of that treasure by being the only person who can reach it. Um, An actual uh, like real metaphor is that Warren Buffett is the guy who gets the call when the whole American economy needs to be bailed out because he's one, the only one with enough money and two, the only one with the reputation to instantly change the sort of uh, environment and the perspective of like retail investors um, when the economy is like in rapid collapse, we're like, Oh, if Buffett's buying, we're good. That's an oversimplification of the whole financial crisis, but it is, it is at least a real world metaphor of this example of specific knowledge and reputation and skill and experience and resources that you can kind of combine. Um, and, and truly it may, it may be as simple as becoming like 
the best plumber in your town who always shows up on time and is the only one who saved up enough to have the very specific like mainline router clean out tool. And you're the only one in the city that has it. So you're going to make a bunch of money off that. Um, like that is as practical of an example as you can get, but the specific knowledge um, is, is like the right place to start this journey. And if you, if you only nail that, you will still have a great outcome in life. Um, but moving beyond that into some of these other concepts is where you start to truly have like, you get a sense of how people achieve these things that are look just totally superhuman to the point of being like almost unfair. But when you see all of these steps put together of someone who has a very deep specific knowledge that is incredibly valuable, that has taken on massive accountability for themselves and their risks, and then has piled on huge amounts of leverage um, and pulled in capital and people to help them. Um, and then you see somebody like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, who's like the most resourced people alive. Like there's a reason for that. And it is because the, all we have all conspired to give them more resources over the last decades because they have shown that they can accomplish incredible things when they have that leverage and that they're willing to take the risk on of failing. Um, and we are happy to support them and accept that, that they're taking those risks and that we're a part of that by donating our time or our capital or our interest, our support, whatever it is to like help accomplish the things that they set out to accomplish because we all benefit from it at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know he's, I have heard him speak about Naval speak about specific knowledge in basically every interview in which he is asked about wealth creation and the other, the other aspect. And there, there's a lot more there that I'm sure we can talk about, but the other piece of this that I know that he has harped on consistently is that to get wealthy and, and maybe before I make this statement, I will note how I have viewed kind of his outlook on the purpose of money in the first place, which is it, you, you used this phrase earlier, the hedonic treadmill, right? The, uh, it isn't for increased material possessions necessarily. Obviously, comfort is a component of living a wealthy and comfortable life. But I think for him, the purpose of money was really autonomy. It mm -hmm. was really freedom. Um, and escaping the nine to five rat race. There's a great line. I remember him saying once in an interview that if somebody can tell you where to, where you have to be, how you have to dress, uh, what, what meetings you have to attend to, you're not really free. You're not a free person. Someone, even if you're making $400,000 a year in Manhattan, you, you are still subject to another human being be, <laughs> being able to control your life. Some of the people with the highest incomes that I know are the least free people. Yeah. Right. Like if somebody's paying you a million bucks a year, then they fucking own you. Um, and and this, this is another uh, one of his favorite. I have a quote uh, quotes section on my website and pro there are probably close to three or 400 quotes on there. And I would bet <laughs> a quarter of them are Naval quotes. One of them is, um, uh, is related to you know, people who, People who uh, stop themselves, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but people who stop themselves from continuously upgrading their lifestyle possess mm -hmm. a freedom that those who don't can't possibly fathom. Basically yeah. that like, I think we, I think he's making the point there that we underestimate what there are diminishing returns to luxury and comfort as you get to a certain baseline. And there's a culturally right now, seemingly, and I think that might be shifting with our generation, 
there's an underappreciation for how much better your life might be if you did really own your time. If you could really go wherever you wanted to during the course of the day, not that you wouldn't want to be productive in some manner, but you can get up when you want. You can stay up late if you're having a great conversation with a friend or a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a really, um, I think it's an interesting point. And I wonder where the, like, where the conspiracy around us not valuing our own time, like our, our leisure time specifically. Right. Um, I think a lot of people might at first blush be like, well, what, like, why would I even want to control my own time? Like, I'd rather have more consumption than more time. And I think that's like a, I don't know where that instinct comes from aside from just like rampant marketing, uh, yeah. like <laughs> efforts over the course of our whole lives. Um, but I think the, another thing I, I can't remember actually, if it, this makes it into the book, um, but something that else that he said that has stuck with me is the this concept that like the uh, hedonic adaptation is so much faster for man-made things than for I natural things. I, I fucking love that. Yeah. Right. So like yeah. you get a new car and like you're over it in two months, but you if you um, you know the joy of like gardening or going for walks or to your point, like talking with friends around a campfire or the things that are like rewarded deep in our genes and have been for generations are significantly like our, our, uh, marginal utility curves, um, to yeah. get way too economically technical our way are, um, significantly more shallow for those things. Yeah. You know, I, I know I, I learned this about you before we started recording as well, that we're both kind of Midwestern boys. And mm -hmm. I know in my own upbringing, um, I, you know, I barely had ever gone to California. I didn't really know wealthy people when I was growing up. They weren't in my, in my cohort or my community. Um, and as I, as I've gotten out there in spending a lot of time in California and really understanding a lot more or being at least exposed to people in the investing world, how, and this, this is a, this is another quote that I've heard, uh, Naval say many times, which is the most important skill is judgment. Mm -hmm. And it, as it applies to wealth creation, you know, if, it, if, if in 1997, hypothetically, you had $5,000 or $10,000 of capital available to you and you applied a judgment call that you were going to bet that this fledgling company called Apple was going to have a run with its new mm -hmm. CEO and be able to actually be a wealth generating machine versus some meddling company that you and I have never heard of that maybe had returns of two to 5% per year for the next decade. The difference in outcome in terms of what the result would be for your life 10 years afterwards is the difference between being a free person and not really. And mm -hmm. the, one of the things that I think excites me about our time, and this is, I think, part of the idea behind Angelus for Naval is basically democratizing investment, investing opportunities to normal people, um, and allowing people's judgment to be leveraged over time. And if you actually make a correct call, it can rapidly change your life in a way that I don't think I appreciated growing up that that was really how these rich people that was primarily how they had done that. 
it wasn't that they worked harder than than other mm-hmm. people. It was that they had made bets that turned out to be significantly more correct than others. Yeah, I mean, I like. I think maybe the luckiest thing in my life is that I grew up in a house where that was discussed. Mm. Like, I did not. I did not have to like battle for that insight. Like, if I learned one thing, like from my dad specifically, it was like, your money can work harder than you can at some scale. Right. And, and that, you know, if you keep your earnings up and you're spending down and you invest the difference, like you will become free. Uh, it was like not an aggressive investor, you know, or into tech or like these, these crazy outcomes by any means, but like even a diehard, like Bogle, like just save and invest and compound and wait, um, is a huge lifestyle change before you even get to the like, okay, now let me try to find the one that's going to be like a hundred X in 10 years. Like that's a totally different game that to your point is like way more democratized now than it ever has been before. I mean, the hundred year scale of that is increasing democratization with like stock indexes and online brokerages. And now increasingly with like lowering accredited investor laws, um, you know, we had this kind of brief period where companies were going public later than than they used to, but now we're seeing crypto come out and companies are like total tokens, I suppose, which may be the new form of equity that becomes predominant is like liquid from day one or day negative 500, right? Like some of these companies are issuing tokens before they're even building a product or you're in order to fund the product. So um, that's going to really change the ability of the average person to access capital and, and the returns on that capital. Cause yeah, I totally uh, putting even 500 bucks into Ethereum, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, I don't even seven years ago, um, would have had the same outcome would, would have made you a free person. And like a lot more people have access to $500 and have an Ethereum than have ever, you know, had access to, hundred thousand dollars and accredited investor accredited like tier investments um so that is going to i think accelerate and to your point of like the value of your judgment is going to there, there's gonna be less filters than ever on you being able to um sort of capitalize <laughs> to to abuse the verb uh, of the noun that we're already talking about on your your judgment yeah and uh, this is related to judgment specifically, but I, I this is a clip that I randomly found that he once did on Periscope that I, I bet you will know what I'm talking about. And, and some mm. of this may have resonated with you. Probably I hope so. Watch this <laughs> <laughs> like maybe a dozen or so times. And the basic uh, the basic idea behind the clip was his three decision making heuristics. Right. And this is related to, to judgment calls. The one of the three that I probably have thought about more than any other, and I think this is applicable to really major decisions of your life, you know, where to live, who to marry, who to date for a long time, what job to take, is if you cannot decide, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I I guess I, w- I just want to throw that one quote out there and see if that resonated with you as well and how you interpret that in terms of either your own life or a general outlook. Like to me, that was him saying, 
there is a there's sort of an innate wisdom that human beings possess about their proper direction in life and if you are at war with yourself or you are which is kind of by definition what uncertainty is is not really having a clear signal then the answer should be no um i throw that out there just in case anything about that sticks with you yeah i mean i think it's a um it's a good thing to hear especially for like the young and hyperactive which i i was and probably still am yeah. um there's there's this other gosh, i can't remember who to attribute this quote to but like the truth of this has always sat with me too that like all of mankind's suffering comes from the fact that we can't just sit in a chair in an empty room for yeah. 30 minutes is that pascal I forget, uh, I, forget who, I forget who said that but anyways yeah maybe sounds yeah. good thanks for trying to save me um i, <laughs> I appreciate it yeah sure. uh, yeah it's i, I and I think that like that kind of goes hand in hand with it. I don't know that that's what Naval was going for, but it is definitely like um, those ideas sit with each other. And when you see that, you're, like the inability to sit still is driven by the like crazy voice in your head that you're like running from, that then causes you suffering um, and pushes you into sort of to rush decisions that you shouldn't be making or get you into situations that you're not hell yes about. Um, often to the exclusion of things that may come along later that you would be hell yes about. Yep. Uh, yeah, those all kind of fit together. And when you can see them stacking on top of each other, you're like, oh, that's why, that's how I ended up in this little mini shit show that I've gotten myself into. Yep. Um, and, and ended up to your point, like either at war with yourself or feeling stuck or something like that. And I mean, a, a job search is like a decent metaphor for this. Like when you have no cushion, you have to take you know, whatever the first job that is offered to you. And when, what, if you had six months to search for a job and get 10 just for job offers, you might find something that resonated with you much more deeply, yep. but very few people have the cushion or savings or temperament, even let's say to like, be willing to sit with uncertainty, um, for six months and put that much work into it. And the same with starting a company, right? Like don't, don't fucking start a company if with the first idea that pops into your head, yep. um, like spend a, if you're going to spend 10 years working on that company and spend a year researching that idea and vetting it out, being sure that you don't have a better idea or a better approach. Um, and that conflicts a little bit, you know, in a, in a paradoxical sense that it is also true that like you can't perfectly research things. And sometimes you just have to start marching and like, you will find a local maximum and, there are secrets that are only accessible to people who have like earned and accumulated scars to like reach the thorny middle of the maze and like, you know, pick up the treasure that lies there. Um, so the, both approaches, I think, have worked for different people in different contexts. Um, and, you know, it's up to all of us to learn how to balance the paradox and apply the heuristics when they make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know when he was giving a, some additional context to that specific quote, if you cannot decide the answer is no. One of the things I remember him saying is that unlike historic times or evolutionary times for, for, for people, we live in an era of option at a, 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 a level of options for people that is very difficult for us to understand as people, you know, as, as one example, it, it, it used to be oftentimes if you passed on a mate who you mm. dated for a long time, that may have been your, your sole opportunity to, 
to have kids or to, mm-hmm. to pass along your genes. And the same thing with jobs, that they were a lot more difficult to connect with recruiters at, at one period of time not too long ago. And that we, we I think, under we misunderstand how many options there are provided we do have the temperament and the, the the ability as you said to kind of wait for something that does feel right for us yeah i mean you know it's been 10 minutes on tinder and that'll cure you of that uh <laughs> the <laughs> illusion that, that you only have you know four options in life um the, the flip side of that is is just as dangerous i think which is that like oh my god there's just massive paradox of choice there's millions of people and you try to over optimize and um, basically like never move forward with any decision because you are paralyzed by the number of options and the inability to move forward, um, and just commit to a path. And, and I think, you know, both are dangerous and pernicious in their own ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to just, I'll briefly say the other two decision-making heuristics, uh, you're obviously welcome to comment on them. And then, and then there's a subject I I really want to talk to you about. The other two that I remember is, um, if, if, um, if you are faced with a choice that, uh, will, it seems to be about 50, 50, you're, you're not exactly sure what to do that he he indicated once that what you want to do is choose the choose the decision um that is more painful in the short term because what what is in his mind happening in circumstances like that is basically pain avoidance that you're trying to kind of push off the uh the the difficult uh situation that you have to put yourself through in order to to move forward the the other decision making heuristic i remember him once saying is that uh when faced with with uh, difficult de- decisions, you want to make the decision that makes you more. The word he used was equanimous, basically peaceful or at peace in the long run, right? Like you want to do have a have a long term perspective, which I think I've also heard him say is es- essentially what all of wisdom boils down to is choosing long term long, a long term view versus a short term view. Yeah, un- un- understanding the consequences of your actions, I think, was like the the succinct definition of wisdom. Um, and judgment was just wisdom applied to external circumstances, external decisions. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those are, I think those are good heuristics. Um, I mean, the danger of heuristics is like, (laughs) they sound good when you read them and they're never, (laughs) they're never there when you need them, um, when you're actually like making the decision and you're like, oh shit. Um, if I was opening, if I had this book open in front of my face, when I was making this decision, I would have chosen differently. Um, and so it was just that process of like working these into your head and, um, you know, translating them into like the habits, you know, the, the hard, the, the typical one for the choose the thing that's hard in the short term is like, go work out every day. Yeah. Like, is it easier every day to choose to not work out? Yeah. Is it easier to like punt out that hard conversation that you really need to have with your kids or spouse or partner or parent? Like, definitely easier to not have it today, but, um, are you just making this moment easier for yourself? Like, yeah, probably. And will your life be better after that hard conversation? Yeah, probably. Um, so pushing yourself to, to recognize those hesitations and work through them. Um, yeah, I think totally, totally, totally valid. Yeah. Um, it's not to say like be a masochist about everything ever. Um, because there's definitely like some ways to make your life. Like, is it easier to invest in Amazon? Like, yeah. Should you do it? Like, fuck. Yeah. Like don't make your life harder, uh, intentionally, but be willing to suffer through things that need to be suffered through to get the result that you want to get. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the uh, the area that this is actually what triggered me reaching out to you was uh, I, so I'm on your I'm on your uh, your email list as well, and so I get your kind of updates from additional uh, so- source material from Naval. And the one, and, and I have heard him um, recently. He's he's done some clubhouse conversations, and I've noticed a theme when there's a public Q and A with him that people seem to be often uh, increasingly interested in his views on matters of the heart, you know, Mm -hmm. matters of personal relationships. And again, I think it's in part because there's such a void in our culture for sane, like timeless wisdom related, like applied wisdom to friendships, to uh, marriage, to relationships, to dating. Um, And, you know, this is a tech multimillionaire we're talking about, right? But he has gained the trust and interest of a lot of people who I have seen want to solicit him for advice in that realm, I think because they just trust his mind and they trust his honesty. And it was about a month ago, I think, that I got uh, an email from you related to his views. I forget exactly what it was titled, but it was something related to relationships. Um, Mm. And there were some quotes that you included in, in there about him. And you know, I know that we're probably relatively close to winding the conversation down and I wanted to give ample time to, to kind of flesh this out, uh, this area of his mind, um, from your perspective in terms of what you've gleaned from him as it applies to human relationships and, and just relationships in, in general that, uh, he might have some ideas or some insight that might be helpful to people generally. Yeah, I, I definitely like experience the same. I get a fair number of emails of like asking for re- links and resources and stuff about these topics too. Um, and I think you're right. That's like, you know, people have listened to him for a while and be like, wow, he's been right about a lot of stuff or I agree with his views on a lot of stuff. And this is an area that, you know, I'm struggling with. So maybe I should see if he's got something to share. Um, there's not a lot from him like in the whole core corpus of his work about relationships. Um, and I think he would say probably similar to hell. He's like, look, I'm like, maybe I've figured some of this out for myself, but I do not feel the level of confidence that I feel that I have like understood the principles to the point where I can share them broadly and feel comfortable with hundreds of thousands or millions of people following my advice. Like mm-hmm. that is a high, high bar. And I, know that Naval has deep respect for the, you know, people who listen to him and take his advice, like seriously, like, I think that's a heavy burden. Uh, and I think what I've heard him say about his principles for wealth specifically, um, but I think it applies to happiness too. He's like, I basically have boiled this down as deep as I can to the point where these are uh, fundamental truths and principles that will basically never be wrong. Like some of them may or may not apply to, to you in this, your circumstance and the order may be important. And you may have to kind of like tweak them in order to fit them into your world. You know, if you're, you know, in a village in India, instead of in San Francisco, I think the principle would still apply, even though the example may be different. And I think the the challenge of that and that may be an impossibility in the realm of relationships right but that's the standard the intellectual standard that he holds himself to when he like puts forth a principle like this um and so it may be an impossibility to reach that on on relationships it may be that it takes 10 more years of work and that's not 
it hasn't happened yet or isn't something that he does. It may be that we are all so deeply, weirdly unique in our own yeah. ways and relationships that it's just not, um, that there are no principles that, that culturally and, you know, age and emotional and experience and upbringing are all like such a weird combination of circumstance that it's not, um, you know, there's just too much hubris in like any sort of prescription at any level. So I'm, um, that is my long, uh, hopefully deft dodge of that question, but with, with enough context to maybe say like, there's a reason that it's not there. Hmm. Hmm. And from you, and you know, I, I know that in in that email that I got from you, that one of the things that I remember him mentioning, because uh, he is married, and I think he doesn't speak often about his relationship, his personal life um, with his family and with his wife. But I do think one thing I have gotten from him is. It, it seemed like at one point in his life, he was either engaged or close to getting married and did not. Mm. And then later in his life did. Um, and he, he said something once that I remember hearing, which is that he, he has great confidence that he and his wife are like, it would never, it wouldn't make sense to him for them to ever separate because their values simply align so closely. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that carried a lot of the weight for them of just maintaining a, a, a healthy relationship. And I, I think one of the quotes that I think I, I ended up putting up on my website, which you included in, in that letter was related to trying, mm -hmm. you know, and that in his <laughs> estimation that especially early in dating someone, his view is that I'd never heard anyone quite put it this way, that your job is ironically to be very selfish and not arrogant, not an asshole, but just to be authentically you. Um, and that a lot of times people put on, it's very natural, I think, as a, as a human being to want to be the, a better version of yourself around someone you're interested in. And then eventually you just can't sustain that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so he, I think his general point was like, if you can just stick to who you basically are and your, your job is to essentially find the puzzle piece in which that aligns as closely as you possibly can. Yeah. That, that, that may be the only, the only principle that there is. Um, and it's funny, like he, you know, that is born of such a long-term view. Like if you want this to be a lifelong relationship, do not engage in any behavior that you do not consider sustainable for your whole life. Um, especially early in a relationship because you're basically making a false promise either to yourself or to your partner or both. Um, and I think that that is a, it is a, it per, the perfect kind of pithy that like, yeah, nobody else would say that. I mean, or it, what's weird. And, and what I love about so much of what Naval does is like, there's a, uh, there's a folk saying for that, which is like, just be yourself. Yeah. And everyone's like the classic advice that everybody gives each other. If you're nervous for a first date, just be yourself. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? And like, why, like, what is good about that? Um, and then you hear Naval kind of like recompile it in his own, like iron prescription kind of way. That's like, no, like don't do anything unsustainable or inauthentic or don't like, don't audition. Don't put on a face. Don't like pretend to have opinions that you don't have or don't not have opinions that you do have, or like 
just, just like, don't change a thing that you're not willing to change forever. Um, and like now, now when you hear just be yourself, if you have this, this like chunk of wisdom from Naval, you hear something totally different yeah. than it, than somebody who just says like this kind of throwaway wisdom that it actually there's deep truth to, if you can expand that into the rest of the context. But I feel like so few people, um, do you know we've lost the we've lost the root folder that that that, that folk yeah. wisdom refers to now um and that this is a helpful way to maybe get some of that back yeah i dude i think that's perfectly said i'd never i'd never heard heard about that phrase and kind of tweaked it with that additional context there dude, um, those, you hear those all through the book the more the more of them um like i did i didn't do this intentionally but like there's version you know um like entrepreneurs should seek risk like that's reformulated into take on accountability you don't want risk. You want accountability. Like that's a very nuanced thing. It takes money to make money, apply capital leverage, right? Like there's all of these, um, sort of, I don't know, folk sayings for lack of a better term that are like true, but have lost the context that make them helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind as you, as you mentioned that is him, I remember him talking about, um, it, it, because there is something deeply Buddhist about a lot of the stuff that he says mm -hmm. as well. Like there, there's definitely a flavor yeah. of that. It's a beautiful blend of like East and West, I think in, in his like studies, you know, Eastern philosophy and Indian influences and philosophers like Osho and, um, you know, reads Buddha, but like also very Western, very American, very capitalist and very tech forward. Like the blend of those things I feel like is so, um, helpful for for so many people in this kind of like uh this newly remixed world yeah yeah and to that point one of i, I studied buddhism when i was in college quite a bit and I, a common you know buddhist pithy statement is life is suffering um mm -hmm. and i remember what naval saying and he's very big into the idea that you know ethical wealth creation is is possible and that mm. if you despise people who make money you will never be a person who ends up making money right mm -hmm. um not for the purpose of self-aggrandizement or hedonic treadmill lifestyles but but for freedom and, and i remember him saying that uh adopting a, a, a principle like life is suffering is basically playing life on hard mode um that you yes you if you do become an ascetic and you don't need anything at all that you need no material possessions you can have your freedom because you have no expenses but your life is going to be quite difficult there is something mm -hmm. too again like blending that east and what there's there's something there in both elements yeah. right that i feel like it's the it's the blend of the two that to me makes for probably the a better life undoubtedly um if, if you if you can live it with that kind of mismatch yeah, which is like I, I, I find it interesting, and I didn't realize this until I was kind of done with this. But how few books address both wealth and happiness yeah. together? And even though this book does not really like attempt in any way to to mash the two together, it does give you perspectives on both, and you can kind of come away with a different relationship between the two, right? So I think this like. You know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of books about wealth and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of books about happiness. Um, but there's very few that like 
even implicitly show you the relationship between the two and the levers that you have and the spectrum that this can take place across, you know, to your point, you can be an aesthetic monk and like have nothing, want nothing, spend your whole life reducing your desires. And there's, there's a path to happiness there by foregoing all wealth. Um, there was also on the total other side, a path to like total misery and massive wealth, where if you never create a gap between what you have and what you want, you will, you will maximize your misery, even if you maximize your physical comfort. Um, and at any point in between, as long as you nurture and expand that gap between your desires and your reality, you can be a happy person, whether you have very, very little or a lot, as long as you as long as you understand and and create that gap, mm-hmm. um, the relationship between your desires and your happiness and your current um, sort of level of material wealth are all in this state of flux together. And they have these relationships with each other that are important for you to understand. And your, your perspective on them is, is, is more important even than what they are to, yeah. to your own lived experience. Yeah. There are two things I want to I want to address and and talk about before we close this down. And the the first is related to how this whole process and how these ideas have affected you, what you how you feel like you have developed, grown, changed through doing all of this research. So fucking enlightened now, just (laughs) (laughs) just radiant ball of enlightenment. Just this is this is Buddhism in one swing. Well, that's obvious talking to you for an hour and a half that that's going on, but, but how, how do you think this has affected you, right? Like the idea to me of a great book and great ideas is that they, they kind of make you better. They upgrade you. They, they change your, they clarify the world in a way that often simplifies things in a, not in a way that's perfect, but just is, is kind of directing you in a more accurate trajectory. Um, how do you think you you've been influenced by all of this, all this work, all of these ideas? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little. Um, it was so gradual over time that it's hard to know for sure. Like it's it's, it's definitely like a frog frog in a pot, and it's it's subtle. Um, but I do. I mean, I like part of what motivated me to do this project is is like incepting these ideas into my head, and yeah. and when you publish them, you also feel some pressure to live up to them. Um, and it, you know, puts you in this spot where you, um, you really want to live the principles that you've learned. Um, you know, like anything else, it is a long, hard process and nobody is perfect. And it is, you know, step-by-step day by day, three steps forward, five steps back, two steps sideways. And then like you miss a day. Um, so it like, I don't want to give anybody some impression that like that I am it by any means fucking enlightened. Um, but I, you know, it is, it is a felt like a step in multiple right directions. And I feel like I have I don't know, more clarity of path maybe. Um, and I understand, I understand the equation more than I used to. Um, you know, that doesn't, I feel like I've got a map and that doesn't necessarily mean I like walk the perfect path every day or every month or even year. Um, but, but I at least understand how to self-correct and you know when might be going wrong. And so I'm, um, I maybe spend less time being lost or confused, um, mm-hmm. about being on path or off path. Um, 
it has made me, you know, more patient is made me, um, I would say maybe the overarching thing is it's given me more agency, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's made me much better at, though far from perfect at um, blaming myself when, when I would have formerly blamed, you know, any, anything in the external world for some perceived slight or injustice or, you know, unhappiness or whatever. I just spend a lot more time focused on my locus of control and, and at the same time, like becoming increasingly aware that my locus of control is much smaller than, you know, my 21 year old self would have thought that it is. And the, both of those things combined, you know, um, I don't know, it's, 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 uh, it is simplifying and there's been more time, like kind of being peaceful and more time prizing freedom and less time, um, desiring new things and more time actually like trying to change my environment and my mindset in order to desire less things, right? Like I don't have Instagram on my phone because I know that that is like basically engineered to create as many new desires as possible in a 10 second window because that's how they make money and like is the the dopamine hit of creating new desires and that is what every influencer is rewarded for who's posting content on there it's what every advertiser is rewarded for it's what instagram itself is rewarded for um and recognizing that for what it is and um you know prioritizing health and prioritizing you know the the peaceful moments and just getting that, you know, Naval's voice in my head. Like I've probably read this book 20 times in the process of creating it. And so I feel like, you know, I've got a little voice in my head that's like, is this really, is this aligning with your values? Is this how you want to be spending your time? And so the, um, it's changed my arrangement and the, my uh, level of sensitivity to recognizing self-conflict and correcting course. Yeah. Um, before I, I ask you the last question of the conversation, I, I just want to f- again like express thanks to you for doing this. You know, I, I I wasn't a part of that initial Twitter poll where you got a lot of enthusiasm, but I certainly was one of these people out there, and I think there are a lot of us who have really gotten a lot from from him um, mm. and wanted something exactly like what you produced. And I remember learning initially about this book that you were putting together and thinking, man, that is something I would have loved to have had the opportunity to do because it's, I think it's just extremely important. And I know how hard it fucking is to do that. Um, and so I just want to take a moment to thank you for doing it because I think a lot of people, the, the, the best idea of, or the, the, the best books and the, the hope of it, the information age that we're living in is that it does make hope in the best sense. It can help people feel a little less lost and a little less confused and a, feel a bit more agency because they have kind of downloaded the the best that's available out there. And I think I just yeah. intuitively, we probably both did, got the sense that Naval was hitting on things that were maybe I, I we had never heard of before, but just resonated in a way. It's like when someone says something clearly and truly that you had kind of weirdly already known, but had never been exposed to before, you're like, that's it. That's exactly yeah. what my experience has been. Yeah, you're kind of like primed for some of these things. And sometimes it's just like, you know, that. I've been picking up pieces of this idea and Naval just like drops the keystone in the arch and you're like, Oh, like I the whole thing comes together. And I remember it all with this one pithy thing that he shared. He, and he's re- like really good at dropping those. 
um, which really helps. But um, no, I appreciate your appreciation. I, I do think that the the book is a wonderful, the book at large, not just this book, books are an amazing technology. Um, and for everything that is going on, there's still something to be said for like, you know, a $15 book that carries the wealth of someone's entire life and wisdom and that you can sit down and read in four hours and have a map for living the whole rest of your life. Um, and I have a huge respect for what, uh, kind of wait, but why calls like the human Colossus, which is like all of this, like accumulated wisdom that we are all contributing to and pulling from. And I spent a lot of my life reading and learning and listening to people who were, you know, decades ahead of me and trying to contribute to the value that is in that like pool of our species and kind of keep passing that all back. Um, and I should say on that note that like this book is very much a public service. Like it is available for free in all of its digital formats, including audio. Um, so if you do not have like financial or physical access to this book in any country or place in the world, like if you can get onto a computer, you can get access to this information. Um, and I, I do like, think that the depth of and clarity of Naval's principles are such that every human on earth can benefit from at least one and potentially like 10 different ideas in this book. Um, and that I hope, you know, I hope it in some small way changes the course of many, many people's lives. Um, and I feel lucky to be a steward of, of Naval's work. Um, cause you know, I, I, all of the brilliance is, is really his, I, truly like had amazing pieces to work with and just tried to pick the best ones and, um, you know, throw them in the wind in such a way that like they reach everybody who they can benefit. Yeah. Amazing. I did. And we will, we will link in the show notes and in the description, um, for the show and it comes out to all of that. So that people have a, have an easy way through the show to be able to access the, that content. The last thing I want to ask you, and we have, we have dug into many of the ideas that are in the book related to uh, to wealth, to happiness, to health. What else, what have I not asked you that you think is matter really matters or is important that has stuck with you or you think is our key insights prefacing that with the knowledge that really reading the book and probably rereading it is the only way to get the, the key, the key, the key components. But what, what else is coming to mind? If anything, that, that is important to articulate here. Um, yeah, what, what we've done here is really spend two hours with like getting me to poorly paraphrase what <laughs> Naval has put perfectly in the book. So if you have made it this far, like, please like stop listening to me and just go listen to Naval. Um, cause he said it all first and all better. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the only thing that comes to mind is like, I may be reiterating that like happiness isn't a choice. Uh, it, it is a choice, but it is a skill and like, it is a learned skill. Um, your level of happiness is, is malleable and increasable. Um, that's not to tritely say it's easy and that you should be able to flip a switch and be happy, but it is to say that like, there is always hope for becoming a happier person. Uh, if you work at it and this, this book will give you, um, some ways to work at it, some very practical levels. Um, and the other is, is like, Naval is who he is because he is a voracious reader. And he says in the book, um, you know, just read like anything that you're excited to read, just read and keep reading. And if you 
slow down for a second, like put it down and pick up something else that you're excited to read. There's a whole section at the end of the book of all of the stuff that Naval recommends reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great place to start if you don't know what else to start with. Um, but yeah, he, he truly like is who he is because of all of the stuff that he has read that has come before him. And um, if you want to, I don't know if you, if you resonate with these ideas and if you want to go to their source, like go, I encourage you to go to their source and like get as close to the primary materials um, as you can and interpret them your own way and recompile uh, for yourself. Yep. Uh, Eric, this has been an amazing conversation. And um, I just want to say again, thank you for your efforts. I know how painful it is to do what you did. And at least in some small way, I understand. Uh, and, and thank you for persevering and thank you for making it available in the way that you that you stated earlier. I think it is a public service and um, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, and that was that was a, a condition of Naval's that I am overjoyed to have done and seen the results of. Um, I mean, probably over a million people now have read free versions, and there's still like many thousands of people buying the physical versions and the audiobook versions and stuff like that. So um, I, I received plenty of support and appreciate all of it. Um, but I, I want to give Naval full credit for that condition. Um, I mean, I'm I'm it was fun work and there's people it sounds like on your podcast who are doing much harder and more noble work than i am um so it's it is an honor to be in in the metaphorical digital room um with some of the other people (laughs) on this podcast and like that yeah i i will dive deep on some of your other episodes and um if people are interested in this i'm sure they should too thank you brother dude this is really great it's great to meet you man thanks for having me appreciate it good talk take care man see ya Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show.